Thank you, choir. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to uh, the book of Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17 is where we are, and uh, we're not in a series yet. I'm looking to uh, move into a series in the next couple of weeks or so, and uh, really kind of praying through that and deciding which one, and uh, narrowed it down to a couple, and, uh, and so we'll, we'll be announcing here soon what our next series is, but really excited about this passage. So a quick backstory to the passage we're going to look at this morning. Uh, I'm part of a D group, and so there's four of us guys meet together once a week, and uh, we study the same passages of Scripture, the same five passages uh, all week long and um, kind of one a day for five days. And then once a week we get together and we talk about what stood out to us. And uh, this was one that really gripped me recently. And uh, I noticed something in this passage of Scripture, Luke 17, that I had never really noticed before. And, uh, and so as I was deciding what to preach on this, this Sunday today, uh, th- this verse kind of came back to mind again. And so I feel like it's what God wants us to look at. There's some things in here that are really, really interesting. You may be familiar with this passage, but uh, a lot that we can take out of it as well. So Luke chapter 17. So you've heard me talk about game shows before when I was a kid. uh, Every day of the week when I was a little kid, like before school started, uh, there would be a game show called The Price is Right. Ever heard of it? All right, so it was on our TV five days a week, and I grew to absolutely hate that show. I cannot stand it, and if it's on still today, I know, I think, it, is it Drew Carey? I think that does it now. I can't remember who it is, but it, I'm not, he doesn't have the long three-foot microphone like Bob Barker did, and, uh, but I, still, I just can't stand that show. On our podcast recently, even, we talked about, for us as pastors, we talked about this whole thing about game shows. Well, I remember back in the day, uh, even still now, obviously, they have prizes, but, but back in the day, right, uh, back when I was a kid and uh, these game shows were on, they would have prizes that were vastly different than today. Uh, you know, it wasn't uncommon for them to have a prize where you'd win like a washer and a dryer, or if you, you know, if you won the silly little game that they did, then you would win maybe a new winter wardrobe or something or living room suit you know with all the furniture and uh, but it was always towards the end of the show they would roll out the big gigantic extravagant over-the-top prize and it was always the brand new car right and everybody would go crazy and they would pull the curtain back and it's like you could win a brand new car and uh, the audience is just you know hooping and hollering and, and the person on the stage would be like oh They'd lose their mind, and, and then they'd play this silly little game to try to see if they could win the car or not. But it was this extravagant, that was that, that version of the extravagant way over the top, are you serious kind of a moment where that was going to be the prize. Well, when we get to John chapter 17, we don't find a prize, right, because God's not in the business of giving prizes for good behavior. What we do find is a show of grace. And here in John chapter 17, it's going to be one of those moments where we see Jesus specifically perform kind of this extravagant, way over the top, are you serious, works in the lives of a group of people here in this particular chapter of Scripture. And when we see what he does, you're going to probably feel a little bit like me, that as we move through this passage and really begin to break it down, there's going to be part of this passage that's going to be a little bit surprising. I hope you can read it like you've never read it before, because some of you are going to be familiar with it. Read it like for the first time. Let your mind create this image as it unfolds when we read it. But there's some surprising elements to this passage. There's also this this part of this passage that as you begin to read, read it, it's a little bit disturbing to some degree. And also even convicting, right? As we see, not so much what Jesus did, but the response to what he does. He does the extravagant, over the top, and the response is going to be in some ways surprising, in some ways a little bit disturbing, and in other ways convicting. And I think what this passage does is sometimes it, it, it helps us to see that there are times in our lives 
where we have kind of a sense of entitlement as people. And even as Christians, there's a sense of entitlement at times to where when God does a blessing for us or he gives us something that we don't deserve, even with salvation itself. But in other ways, when God goes with the extravagant, over-the-top route in our lives and he gives us something undeserved or does something in our lives that we don't deserve, there are times where we go away with much the same attitude as we're about to read here in Luke chapter 17. And underlying it, we would never own this publicly because it, it, it would be too hard to do this, but underlying, there's this attitude of, when God blesses us, we just sort of tip the cap to him because deep down somewhere, we kind of feel like we deserve it anyway. You know, we kind of deserve it anyway. Even for some, even the salvation that they have, it's like, you know what, I know God saved me by grace, but I kind of deserve it anyway. I mean, after all, look at me, I'm a good person. Look at all the other people. They're not nearly as good as me. I kind of deserve to be saved. That's the underlying attitude a lot of times, sadly, for a lot of believers. And sometimes when God gives us a blessing or he does some special work of grace in our lives, there's this underlying attitude that, that, that without really verbalizing it, again, we don't have the courage to do that, but sometimes there's this attitude that, you know what, I kind of deserve this anyway. I mean, because God should be glad to have me to begin with. And so we miss, what happens is that's very dangerous because we miss the opportunity to give God what he deserves. And oftentimes we mishandle those blessings because we miss the grace and we think we deserved it. So in Luke chapter 17, all of that gets mixed up and all of that gets, gets, gets ultimately kind of brought out in this passage of scripture. Again, that's surprising. It's very familiar for a lot of you. It's also uh, very, very convicting. And maybe even for you, that's where you found yourself recently. So let's give a little bit of backstory to Luke chapter 17. So Luke chapter 17, here's the easiest question you're going to get all day. Um, who do you think wrote the book of Luke? Okay, Luke wrote the book of Luke. Trick question, who do you think wrote the book of Acts? Not a guy named Acts, all right? Luke. So, so the book of Luke is the gospel, right? It's the gospel of Luke, and it's in that book that Luke wrote that he chronicles a lot of, not all of, but a lot of the life and ministry of Jesus. We find that in the book of Luke. Now, the book of Acts is kind of like Luke part two in a way. It's where he chronicles the life and the ministry of the early church. So the gospel of Luke deals much with Jesus. The book of Acts deals much with the early church. All of it, obviously, is God's work on display. Well, here we find that in Luke chapter one, we're not going to turn there, but we find in Luke chapter one that he, by his own admission, uh, has set out to write for us an orderly account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Luke, as a physician, would bring a physician's mindset to his gospel. You're going to see numerous instances, including today, where there's going to be a physical ailment that is addressed and that is dealt with. But there's also this desire to lay things out in an orderly fashion. Maybe that's the doctor's mindset he brings to this, but he tells us in Luke 1 that that was his goal, that he wanted to bring an account of the works of Jesus, not all of them, but in a way that is orderly and in a way that we can easily follow. And so here, in this particular point in Jesus's ministry, he is, I guess you could say, maybe just a few months away, Jesus is, from arriving in Jerusalem, where the events of the cross are going to begin to unfold. Luke chapter 17, he is somewhat in the middle part of his gospel, but we pick up as Luke gives us an account of a real life experience where Jesus performs a miracle, and the result of that is going to be just a little bit surprising and somewhat convicting as well. And so let's jump in. Luke chapter 17, 
Let's begin in verse 11. Before we read, I just want to turn your attention. I have no idea what your Bible says here. I can tell you what mine says. But oftentimes when you read the little heading before the passage starts, those aren't part of the Bible necessarily. Those have been inserted. They're not necessarily without error. But it's like a little summary. Before verse 11, that next line up there, I have a little heading that says concerning gratitude. Maybe your little heading says something similar. I'm going to come back to that here in just a few moments. So Luke chapter 17, verse 11, you can read along with me as Luke writes. He says, while he, that capital H, he is a reference to Jesus, while he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. So Luke paints the picture for us here, and he tells us that Jesus is now on the way to Jerusalem. This is the third time in Luke's gospel that Luke tells us that he's on the way to Jerusalem. Three times he's told us, this time included, what is the significance of Jerusalem? You can understand by the the attention that Luke gives here that there's something going down in Jerusalem. I've already referenced it briefly earlier. What was about to go down was going to be the arrest and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. The whole reason (laughs) Jesus came in the first place. When you read in Luke chapter 2, for example, earlier in Luke's gospel, when Jesus is born of a virgin named Mary and the angels sing and everyone is astounded, all of that was pointing 33 years later to Jerusalem. All of his miracles, all of his teachings, all of his, everything that he did was ultimately funneling down to what would go down in Jerusalem when he would be arrested, when he would be crucified, and when he would rise again from the dead. Everything was headed there. Luke in his gospel even pictures that in the way he writes it. This is the third time, again, he says that he's going on his way to Jerusalem. And he even gives us a location. He says there in verse 11 that Jesus was passing between Samaria and Galilee. All right, so he's kind of in this middle region, so to speak, Galilee largely filled with Jewish population, Samaria largely filled with non-Jewish called a Samaritan population. I won't go into a lot of the details with that, but you may already remember that the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along so well. It was oil and water. The Jews had their, their place of worship The Samaritans had their alternate place of worship. It went back centuries. There's a lot of history involved in that. Jesus loved them both equally, and he came to save both of them equally, okay? But he's passing along that region between Samaria and Galilee. He's making his way towards Jerusalem. Verse 12 and verse 13, it says, as he entered a village, right? Get that in your mind. As he enters this village, 10 leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Ten leprous men. In the Old Testament times, as well as the New Testament times, leprosy was largely a death sentence, to a large degree. It was a death sentence socially, because it required isolation. I'm going to read a passage from the Old Testament in just a moment that, that shows us that. It, it, was a, there, it was a social death sentence. It required isolation. You see that even in this passage of Scripture where they stand at a, dif- at a distance. It was not uncommon, Old and New Testament alike, for those who had the disease of leprosy to live together in somewhat of their own community right? And you see this. They're all 10. They're bounded together. They, they kind of got their own little community. They're standing off at a distance. 
Leprosy was also somewhat of a death sentence physically because it was somewhat of a slow death for many of them. Uh, there, there was um, the experience of pain to some degree to the point to where you didn't even feel it anymore because the nerve endings would be affected and uh, fingers and toes would be lost and would be minimal pain to some degree as it would begin to advance. It was just a horribly disfiguring, isolating disease. But there was also somewhat of a spiritual uh, impact that came from it as well. Leviticus chapter 13, you don't have to turn there, but just, just read along with me on the slide. Leviticus chapter 13 gives us an Old Testament perspective of how leprosy would be dealt with, how a person with leprosy would be dealt with. It says in Leviticus chapter 13, verse 45, it says, As for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn, and the hair of his head shall be uncovered, and he shall cover his mustache or his mouth and cry, Unclean, unclean. Right? Later, we would see that at times this would be indicated by the ringing of a bell where if you were even passing along a street, a roadway, and uh, there was one with leprosy there, they would be required to step aside and to notify you, stating, unclean, oftentimes even ringing a bell. Verse 46, he shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. It was a death sentence in many ways. And again, you see this in this passage of Scripture. Let's go back to Luke 17 again. You see this. These, these men, all ten of them, are in their own little community. They're isolated. They're standing apart. And, and they are probably crying out what the law requires of them with their mouths covered in somewhat muffled uh, language. Unclean, unclean, unclean to give notice to those who are passing by. Jesus is one of those that is now passing by. In some ways... You could say, uh, Luke doesn't draw this parallel necessarily, but you can, you can see a lot of the parallels between leprosy and sin, right? Because sin, at the same time, also is very debilitating, disfiguring. It's isolating, isolates us from God. If you've ever wrestled with sin, even as a Christian, that you've been slow to confess, maybe there's been a little pet sin you've kind of taken under your wing. It's like, this is my little pet sin. The chances are, I can pretty much guarantee that the stronger you embrace that sin and refuse to put it off, the colder your heart grows towards God, right? It's, sin is isolating by its nature. It, it changes our mindset. It begins to change the motivation of our heart if it's not dealt with. And at the same time, it is also a slow fate. It's a slow death to the point to where if we die in our sin without our salvation through Jesus, then that results, as Jesus would say, in eternal death. So there are a lot of parallels there. You see these 10 men. Do you have them in your mind there? These 10 men, uh, whatever stage that they're in, it's very obvious that they have leprosy. They're standing there by the roadside, and they see Jesus passing by, and they cry out to him. And it's interesting how they refer to him. If you look back again in, uh, in verse 13, they say Jesus, they call him by name, and they call him Master. Well, in the, in the Gospels, oftentimes Jesus would only be called Master by his disciples, Everybody else called him teacher, rabbi. It was his disciples that called him master. These men, these 10 men with leprosy, see him on the roadside, and they refer to him by name and by the title of master. There's a recognition there that we know who you are, and we know the, the, the authority that you carry. It's almost as though they recognize here that he is God, which is good because he is. <laughs> and they say master, and then they say have mercy on us. What does what that word, word mercy refer to? It's not just compassion. It's not just compassion. You can have compassion from a distance, right? You feel sorry for someone. You have compassion for their plight, whatever it is they're going through in their experience. 
This word is a little different. It, it means to have compassion, to have sympathy, but to also put that into action. And it's these 10 men, these 10 leprous men with the very obvious outward physical signs of their disease that was socially debilitating, physically debilitating, relationally, uh, uh, spiritually debilitating. It was these 10 men that cry out to Jesus, Master, we know who you are. Don't just see us and leave us this way. They're crying out to him, have mercy on us. The reality of their situation caused them to cry out to Jesus. There is nothing else. It's like, we're not going to miss this opportunity. Here he comes. We know who he is. And we're going to cry out to him. Have mercy on us. Notice Jesus' stunning response, verse 14. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Go and show yourself. Go and show. Real easy to remember. He tells them to do two things. Go and show. Leave here, find the priest. Now, we don't know for sure if this would be the priests in Jerusalem, if they would have to travel a distance to get there, or if there would be priests in their location. Luke doesn't necessarily tell us. But he says, go and show yourself to the priests. And then he goes a little bit further. Luke tells us that as they were going, they were cleansed. Now, let me, let me just give a little, a little bit of backstory here. Why would Jesus say, go and show yourself to the priest? Sounds a little bit odd, right? Um, it, it's like you go into the doctor, right? And, and let's, say, let's say you have COVID, and the, COVID uh, the, the doctor gives you treatment, and somehow you're healed on the spot, and the doctor says, great. Uh, now go show yourself to the pastor, <laughs> and you're going to be healed. It seems to be kind of odd. Like, why would Jesus do this? Why would he send him to the priest? He had authority over the priest. Well, there was an Old Testament mandate. And you can, you can see it, again, back in the book of Leviticus to where it's, it's all laid out. There's this protocol that if you had leprosy, what the Old Testament law laid out was that if you claimed to have been healed, you would go to the priest. Remember, you're ceremonially unclean, right? So you would go to the priest you would present yourself with a claim to have been healed, that would then put into, in, in, into play a series of events. You would offer an offering of two birds. Typically, this is Old Testament law. You would make an offering there. And then the priest would begin a process of seven days of, of, of investigating whether or not, number one, you truly had leprosy, number two, whether you truly were healed, and number three, what were the circumstances of your healing. That was how the Old Testament law mandated this. There was a very strict way. And and then at the end of the seven days on day eight, if you were truly have proven to have been healed, then there were more offerings that would be made and the leper was anointed with oil and he would be considered no longer unclean. If you look back in Luke chapter five, for example, you can flip there with me if you'd like. In Luke chapter five, you see this in a separate event. Uh, In this case, a, a single person with leprosy, Jesus heals him. This person he heals on the spot. Luke chapter 5, verse 12, look at what it says. It says, while he was in one of the cities, Jesus, Luke chapter 5, verse 12, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. In this case, it was right then. And he ordered him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest, Jesus says. 
make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded for a testimony to them. All right, so there's the protocol. It's an Old Testament law protocol. Jesus fulfilled that Old Testament law, and he followed the protocol. Now, here, here's what's interesting. Now, just follow me here for a second. Remember, there's a, there's a series of investigative questions that are asked. If a leper shows up in front of the priest and says, hey, I had leprosy, now I'm healed. Just imagine what that conversation would have sounded like. And especially if any of these priests later, in just a few months, would be responsible, listen, would be responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus because the chief priests and the Pharisees were part of this. Imagine what this conversation would look like as the lepers, ten of them, one after the other. I mean, imagine the priest saying, number one, and the first guy comes in and he says, he, he's, he says all right, I've done all of your, your, um, your investigative work and I have found that um, that yes indeed you did have leprosy and yes indeed you have been healed but can you tell me what were the circumstances of your healing and the priest says well there was this man named Jesus <laughs> priest writes it down great now serving number two <laughs> number two comes in hey we've proven that you've had leprosy we've proven that you were healed but can you just share a little more about the circumstances of your healing oh i'd be glad to you see there was this man named jesus 10 different times 10 different lepers come before the priest according to the old testament process and procedure and they tell the story of how they were healed and it was by one man named jesus i know just imagine that especially those priests would later have this jesus stand in front of them and they already knew who he was and what he'd done and so they follow this old testament process they go before the priest and it's interesting because luke adds a little something there in verse 14 he says and as they were glow going they were cleansed as they were going in this instance for whatever G reason jesus did not do like he did back in luke 5 where all of a sudden boom they the, the, the ten of them were just healed on the spot and they're like oh, and they look at it wasn't like that it was as they were going. So there was a point where they, covered in leprosy, crossed paths with Jesus. Jesus tells them, go and show yourself to the priest. They knew why they would do this. The only reason they would do this was because they had been cleansed. They look down, they see leprosy all over themselves. And as they are going, Luke doesn't tell us, was it 100 feet? Was it 100 yards? Was it 100 miles? We don't know. That as they are going, somewhere along that journey, it must have been fairly close because they were still in the same proximity of Jesus, that as they are going, one of them had to have looked down and gone, you guys, <laughs> we're healed. And they all look at themselves and they check themselves out. It's like, you're healed and you're healed and we're, we're all healed. I mean, just imagine as this unfolds. Now, now, for us, we need to understand something here that it sounds like that it was because of the strength of their faith that they were healed. That's what it sounds like. And it sounds like there are a lot of late night preachers that would love to jump on this and say it was because of the magnitude of their faith that they were healed. Understand, it wasn't because these 10 men had randomly decided we're going to just believe we're healed. I'm sure they had tried that already. It was in response to what Jesus said. It was in their faith in what Jesus as master said that they were healed. Not because of their faith, it was because of Jesus. Let me just say, I'm going to hit this and I'm going to move on. 
that depending on what you read when you grab a Christian book out of the Christian section at Barnes & Noble, be careful, right? Depending on what you read, depending on what you see after midnight on certain stations on television, <laughs> where there's a preacher in a suit up there preaching, be careful, right? Depending on what you read, depending on what you hear, sometimes you will be told that if you just believe hard enough, you're going to be healed. If you just believe hard enough, you're going to be rich. If you just believe hard enough, all of your desires are at your disposal. Because after all, didn't Jesus just say, if you only ask in my name, I'll give it whatever you ask. Understand what it means to pray in his name. It means to pray according to his will. And I can pray for a $200,000 Lamborghini and believe all I want that it's going to show up in my garage. Listen, it's not. Okay? It's not. It's not about our faith. It's about starting with what he says. Now, when Jesus says it, take it to the bank. All right? And walk like it's already done. That's the whole purpose of this. Go show yourselves to the priest. Oh, but why? We're not healed. Go show yourself to the priest. But we only go to the priest whenever we're healed and we're not healed. Go show you. I wonder if he had to say it 10 times. Go show yourself to the priest. And, and when they took him in his word, as they are going, they're healed. Right? They're healed, all 10 of them. And they recognize this is Jesus who has done this. Remember, there's a portion of this passage that is surprising. It's surprising how Jesus did this. Not surprising that he did it. It's surprising a little bit how he did it. But there's also a portion of this that's just a little bit, it's a little bit convicting at the same time as well. Look at what it says in verse 15. It says, now one of them, Luke tells us, one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him, and he was a Samaritan. The word he, at the very end of that, in verse 16, where it says, and he, I've highlighted in yellow, is emphatic. And it was almost as though, as Luke is telling this in written form, he is saying, and he, it'd be you putting all caps in a text, right? He's not yelling at anybody here, but he's emphasizing. It's like bold and italics and underline all together in all caps. He's saying, and he, believe it or not, was the very person that probably would have rejected Jesus in the first place because he was a Samaritan. Only one out of the ten. Luke says that when he saw that he had been healed, he looks at himself and he realizes, look at what, look at what has happened. He turns back, he does a 180, he beats a straight line back to the person of Jesus. And it says that he thanked him, verse 16, he gave thanks to him. But in verse 15, it also says that he was glorifying God with a loud voice. Verse 17, then Jesus answered and said, were there not 10 cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Remember, your faith has made you well. It's not the strength of their faith. It's the person who did it. It's Jesus. There were times in Jesus' ministry where he healed people that believed. There were times he healed people that probably didn't believe. Remember the guard that... Uh, 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 Peter stepped out in the Garden of Gethsemane and whacked his ear off, right? That guard probably didn't believe who Jesus was. He never would have been a part of arresting him if he did in the first place. 
but Jesus healed him. Took his ear, healed it, put it right back on. There are times in the Bible where Jesus healed people that couldn't believe. I mean, Lazarus, <laughs> he was dead. He couldn't believe enough, right? It's not because of our faith. Lazarus didn't have faith. He was dead in the grave. Jesus healed him too. It's not about the faith. It's about the person who did it. And when Jesus did this extravagant, over-the-top, are you serious moment, right, where he heals these 10 men with a death sentence over them, socially and spiritually and physically, he heals them. Only one of them, the Samaritan, the least likely of all, the most surprising one of all, turns around and comes back. And, and, and here's what struck me about this passage. This is where, to me, this is, this is kind of where it all goes to. It's not just a matter of saying thanks. See, when I, when I would read this passage, as a, up until like a month ago with, with the D group that I'm in, the, this had never stepped out to me before. I would always read this passage, and if you were to ask me to explain to you, Brooks, what is the whole gist of this passage in Luke 17, where these ten lepers are healed, and, and, and you know, not, they all leave, and only one of them comes back? I would say, you know what? It, it, it's a kind of teaching about gratitude. We need to be thankful for what God's done for us. And even in my Bible, like I told you, it, it's, he, the heading was about gratitude. That's a part of it. He came back and said thanks. But he also, Luke says, glorified God. There's a difference. There's a big difference between just giving thanks, glorifying God for what he's done. A huge difference. If I'm riding down I-16 and I blow out a tire and I smack a tree at mile marker 131 and my car catches on fire and somebody pulls over and rushes over to me and drags me out of that car while it's on fire and as they drag me away about 50 yards away the car blows up and burns up and my life is spared I'm not tipping a cap to that guy and saying hey dude thanks oh can you help me get a ride by the way I'm headed to Macon <laughs> no it's going to be fall on his neck and hug him and, and, and probably snot all over him right and I'm going to be weeping and I'm going to be crying and I'm going to say thank you thank you thank you and everywhere I go from that day forward if that dude's in the room I'm telling everybody hey this is Jeff right and Jeff pulled me out of a burning car one time and one of the reasons I'm still here by God's grace is because he helped me and if I know where Jeff works, you do the same thing. You're probably going to go down to where he works, and you're going to deliver all kinds of goodies and snacks and all kind of stuff. And you're going to tell everybody, hey, do you know that the guy in the third office down on the left, Jeff, do you know what he did for me one day? Right? And it's not going to be a, let me tip the cap and just give a thanks to Jeff and go on my merry way. I'm going to give him glory for what he's done. I'm going to tell everybody about what he's done in my life. And what often happens when we look as Christians, what often happens for all of us, we all have a tendency to do that that is that when we look at the extravagant over the top are you serious grace that God has poured into our life in salvation in the blessings he's given us in the material possessions that we have in the relationships that we have in the health that he's given us go on and on and on what often happens is we get to a point as Christians to where we become so accustomed to it we almost mistakenly think we deserve this and we tip a cap to God and we'll say, I came to church, I'll see you back next month, God. Or we throw a few little whatevers in the, in the plate. I hope this helps you out, God, as though he's in debt and needs our help, right? Or we have our own little versions of tipping the cap to him when really what we should be doing is living our life, Romans 12, as a living sacrifice. That is our acceptable act of worship and telling everybody that we can, do you know what he's done for me? He saved my life. He changed my life. 
He pulled me up out of this pit. He rescued me out of this hardship. He was there for me when nobody else was. Do you, do you know what he's done for me? See, there's a big difference between just saying thanks and giving glory. And what I had missed about this passage for so long was that these men, only one of them came back. I'm sure they all thought to say thanks at some, in some way, all right? You know, maybe the other now we're talking about it one day. You know, that was really cool what he did for us, man. We, we should thank him if we ever see him. But this one came back, and he not only said thanks, but he gave him the glory that he deserves. You know, it, it, that's the convicting part. How do we respond to those extravagant, over-the-top moments when God just pours out grace into our lives? And have we gotten over the fact that he saved us out of our own sin and given us a place in heaven that we don't deserve? Have we come to a place as Christians where we've just gotten over all that? Or are we still struck by the amazing, incredible grace that he's shown us to the point to where we not just say thanks, but we give him true glory. You know, there are a couple of takeaways I think that we can roll out and just button this up. And I don't know how it unpacks for you. I don't know if it's convicting. I don't know if it's surprising. I don't know if it's disturbing. I don't know. But the picture here is so clear that Jesus, way over the top, did what they didn't deserve, and he changed everything for them. And I think one takeaway that comes out of it, at least for me, and you can jot these down if you'd like, is that God deserves glory, right, from us for his work of grace in your life. And if you're willing to pause and take a look, there are a lot of demonstrations of grace. And he deserves glory for all of them. Not a tip of the cap, just thank you, God. It doesn't have to be an outward show of display as though if you're not crying that it doesn't mean anything. I'm not saying that glory he gets glory for those shows of grace he deserves that kind of glory he deserves that kind of response and then principle number two is that it's your giving of glory to God often that has a residual effect on others have you ever heard somebody praise God for what he's done in their life and you could tell it's from the heart and it just began to move you to a point to where you just wanted to praise him too for what he's done for you it has this contagious residual effect and you can, you can see that elsewhere in the New Testament you can almost imagine this one leper who had been formerly a leper who has now been cleansed, who's back in worship again, and they're thinking, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. Last I saw you was on a roadside up near Samaria, ringing a bell, saying unclean, what are you doing here? And he's like, oh, let me just show you what God's done for me. His name is Jesus. And he can do the same for you on the inside, where you have something far worse than leprosy on the outside. And imagine the praise that went up to the Lord from others that met him as he gave glory. Imagine the residual effect as others would praise God for what he had done in their lives as well. Hey, I don't know for you, maybe for you, you've slipped into this mode where what you have, you feel like you've deserved it. Or even in your salvation, you kind of look around at the people that you've qualified as a little less than, and you think, you know what? God would have been crazy not to save me anyway. I mean, look at what I bring to the table. Maybe you've slipped into that little mode just remember, we don't deserve a thing but what he saved us from. And the only reason he saved us from it is because he loves us 
and he's a God of grace. And any praise we can give him, he's worthy of. Let's pray. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Maybe for you, even right now, your mind is going to things that you can look at and say, only God could have done this in my life. But maybe you've never thought about what it means to truly give him thanks on one level, but to even go further and to give him glory for what he's done. You know, our world is filled with so much negativity and cynicism. What, what, if, what if it began to be filled a little bit more with those who've been touched by the grace of God who are willing to give him glory, even in the public arena for what he's done? Maybe for you, you've never, you've never felt that touch of grace in your life because maybe for you, you feel a little bit more like one on the outside because you've never confessed your sin to God and never received the forgiveness that he offers. You know what God offers today to everyone in this room, to everyone who's watching and everyone who's here and everyone who's listening, God offers a brand new relationship and a brand new heart and he offers to cleanse us from the worst stain of all and that's the stain of our own sin. But the only way that that happens is when we confess our sin to Jesus, God, who came and died and rose again. And it's as we confess our sin, and it sounds something like this, Lord Jesus, I need you because I have sinned and I have blown it in the sight of God. It says we confess it there, and then we trust him, Jesus, to forgive us, and we invite him. And it sounds something like this, Jesus, I ask that you'd forgive my sin, wipe my heart clean, take over my life. It says we, it's, we pray a prayer like that and invite Jesus to forgive and to take over, that he does exactly that. And you know what he does? Heads bowed and eyes closed. You know what he does it is that he takes us. He takes us off of the sideline. He takes us from outside the family and he brought, brings us in and he forgives us and he cleanses us and he, and he makes us a son and a daughter to where we're part of the very family of God. And he begins to move in our lives and to use us as he changes us. And maybe for you, the starting point is to give your life to Jesus for the first time to start with. And I promise you, you make that decision. You'll have plenty <laughs> to give him glory for from that day forward. If you've never done it right where you sit, you can ask him. You can ask Jesus to forgive and to save you and he'll do it. If you do, we'd love to know about it. You can check that box on that connection card and turn it in. We want to pray with you and we want to encourage you later this week in that new relationship. God, we thank you that you've done so much in our lives that we don't deserve. All of us, myself included, fall into the trap at times of, of, of getting so accustomed to your grace that we take it for granted, of getting so accustomed to your grace that sometimes we think we do deserve it. When at the end of the day, we don't deserve anything from you except your judgment, but it's you in your grace and in your love and in your mercy, Lord, that you poured out your judgment on your son in our place and you've invited us to be part of your family through Jesus. Lord, may you give us boldness. May we have the courage, Lord, in the doors that you open for us to give you glory, to give you honor, not just a, a thank you, but to live our lives in surrender as our sacrifice back to you for your show of grace in our lives. God, be glorified through us, through us as a church as well. We pray and we thank you for going way over the top, extravagant, and even saving us to begin with. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.